everybody and welcome to another episode of No Limit with Christoph and Luke, where we talk about anything and everything vaguely investing related. But I guess currently we seem to have a bit of an AI theme running. And I guess today's episode is going to be no different. I'm Luke Hallard, and as ever, I'm joined by my fellow lead advisor at Seven Investing, Christoph Pakarski. Good afternoon to you, Luke. I've been waiting to have this conversation. It's so much has happened since we last spoke. <laughs> a mere, can you believe it was a mere two weeks ago? For sure. So, well, today is uh, Monday, the 24th of October. And I think this is going to go out in about a week's time. But something I will say very exciting. Just two hours ago, we have a brand new prime minister, our third in what, two months, maybe? Pretty wild times over here. Sorry to make this blunt, but uh, what? <laughs> how do you look? How do you feel? Tell me, tap into your feelings. <laughs> I mean, it's hard, you know, not being in the place to not being there with you to understand or feel the upheaval or maybe it's projection. But how are you handling all this? Is it wild? Are you okay with it? I mean, what the heck is going on even? It's just a mess, isn't it? I'm, uh, I guess if there are any emotions, I'm feeling personally embarrassment and frustration that we just haven't sorted this absolute shit show out to be honest so yeah uh two hours ago rishi sunak crowned as pm replacing liz truss who lasted just 44 days in her disastrous role as prime minister can you walk us back just maybe give us a little bit of of concrete detail from your view why did boris johnson get booted out let's say so essentially, I guess a couple of things were going down. There was something called Partygate, which the newspapers got hold of. And basically, while uh, putting out his coronavirus pandemic policies uh, that stopped a lot of citizens actually from you know, even seeing family members at Christmas at the height of the pandemic, allegedly Boris was having a bunch of parties at number 10 with his colleagues, so kind of flouting his own rules. Um, but... You know, if, you, uh, if you've been following the Boris story for the last decade or two, he used to be the, the mayor of London. You know, this guy has a kind of travelling circus that goes with him everywhere, right? And he kind of plays by his own rules. This really shouldn't have been particularly mm. surprising to anybody. Mm. Um, and I think he did a decent job of navigating the, uh, the pandemic in the UK, but he wasn't a leader that many of his MPs were really getting behind. And so, uh, yeah, he got booted out by his own party. And then there was a replacement uh, who was, lasted, a, right, 44 days. Why? And you know, hey, uh, 44 is a, a kind of magic number in, in Chinese as well, in Cantonese oh. and Mandarin. 44 is double death because a four oh, C in Cantonese is very similar to the word for death. So, yeah, that's a, that's a double death day to finish on. Can't um, be good. Yeah, it can't be good. Can't, can't be good, exactly. Can't be good. So, 22 would have been much better. How bad? I mean, when you said, you know, she had this disastrous run, what I'm curious about is on the one hand, uh, obviously things could go very badly. But on the other hand, when you only have 44 days, just how, just, just what, just what was so disastrous that the turnaround was so fast? I think the main thing that was her undoing was the mini budget, essentially. Uh, a swathe of unfunded tax cuts put forward by, well, her chancellor, Kwesi Kwarteng, kind of took the fall for it. He was essentially fired a few days before Liz Truss was effectively fired herself. Um, but they were her policies. Liz and Kwesi had put these together some time ago. So, uh, so he went down for putting forward her policies. 
And um, it was a mess. We saw what happened in the financial markets. It wasn't pretty. I think the markets really took a dim view of that. And as a result, sterling bombed. A lot of UK pensions were in really quite serious trouble. It wasn't pretty. One thing about Rishi is he kind of set out that this is what he thought would happen. And he's kind of come to pass. You know, he's probably the best of all bad outcomes right now. But I think one thing we can look forward to, perhaps, hopefully, is a bit of stability and a PM who's as an ex-chancellor of the Exchequer himself has got some financial nous and is at least going to navigate the economy side of things, hopefully successfully. Do you have any personal views in this? Personally, I think we should have a general election, which is where the entire country has the opportunity to have a say on who our PM is. But the opposition party have a really strong lead in the opinion polls right now. It's almost certain that Labour would get in if there was a general election. So it's kind of a suicidal move for the Conservative Party, who currently have power, to call a general election. They're basically giving up control if they do that. Does it feel like a chaos? Like, obviously, it's not stable and it's not <laughs> par for course. So how bad, or bad in quotes, is it? It's been pretty bad for the last uh, week, at least, uh, when we've just been up in the air again. Um, I think the news today is good news. As I said, kind of best of all the bad outcomes that are currently on the table. Like Boris having just been booted out and I think still potentially facing uh, kind of legal consequences for some of his actions while he was PM, that Partygate thing. Uh, you know, Boris getting back into power, which was looking like it was possible like 24 hours ago, that would have been a complete disaster. The other sort of third horse in the race is a lady called um, Penny Mordant. I think she could have been a good leader, but she didn't seem to have the party uniting behind her. Sunak seems to have the edge here. Um, he got to the required number of votes from MPs the fastest, and I think he's going to do a decent job of the economy. Plus, hey, I've seen one newspaper describe this as the UK's uh, Barack Obama moment. Mm -hmm. So that's great as well. I can get behind Rishi. I think that'll see us stably through to the next general election. But honestly, I'm not voting for the Conservatives when I get my chance. Uh, fascinating stuff, Luke. I mean, uh, not that the political situation here in the US is <laughs> anything to admire. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty wild what the world, I guess, as a whole seems to be going through. But that, that quickness yeah. of, of change is, is quite startling. And one thing I'm curious about is that from a system's view, often changes require time to move through the system, right? You could pull a lever, but you actually won't see the effects of the policy or how the variables shift. And often it's many months or perhaps years. So I wonder maybe the only call it counter argument would be you elect a new prime minister and in 44 days there's no <laughs> logical way for any policy to have had any real chance to do whatever it was going to do so was this the case of a kind of hysterical panic or was it really just so disastrous that it was obvious from day one well let's let's put aside the uh the mini budget and the financial policies Something that really alarmed me personally, um, kind of the bread and butter for a PM. So there was a uh, there was a vote on anti-fracking that the opposition party had brought, and uh, there was such chaos for the Tories in trying to assemble their membership 
and vote against this motion that was being put forward by Labour. And this really should be kind of ABC stuff for a PM to be able to organise. And evidently the, the chaos and the misconfusion was rampant and nobody knew if it was what's termed a confidence vote or not, i.e. kind of a three-line whip. You have to get behind the party and kind of vote with the party as opposed to being able to have your own opinions that are perhaps shaped by your constituents or you're kind of forced to vote along party lines. They, they couldn't even figure that out between themselves. And mm. so if the PM can't organise her party in such a basic way, well, I think that doesn't show a great deal mm -hmm. uh, for her competence as a leader. Well, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> I should definitely have something stronger than a sparkling water uh -huh. in hand for this conversation. For sure. Oh. We need some luck. And then uh, it's, it's interesting. I'm noting that it's October 24th. So next time we record will be two weeks. So that will put us on the U.S. midterm elections. So we're both in for some upheaval, I think. You got some views on how that's going to play out in the U.S.? The stuff I've been following, especially on 538, statistically okay. shows that the Democrats have a good chance at keeping the Senate and that the Republicans will take back the House. But unlike any other election year, it seems like the variables in play are so intense and perhaps unpollable that we don't know. And it's also useful to remember that when, for example, you have a probability of 30%, that's still of a high probability. You know, one in three times, the lower odds will actually pull through. And that's kind of hard. Or the, You know, I think that's one of these biases where people don't really understand that even, say, a one in 10 chance means actually one in 10 times that low probability thing will happen. So it's a real unknown, I think right now and that one in three so that's what 538 are forecasting as the way the house and the senate play out right which would mean that the u.s congress would be split in half which in terms of partisanship and in terms of the generational upheaval that we're looking at to further split things seems like a perfect recipe for absolute gridlock and the tensions continuing to rise so it's a mess. How long does Joe have in his term before there's another election in the US? So the midterms will be in two weeks and then in two years, the, the presidential race one more time. And, uh, and have you potentially got uh, your own traveling circus moment where Trump might be returning in a kind of Boris 2.0 way that normally happened in the UK? Uh, yeah, I think anyone that dismisses that possibility is naive or or you know, it's wishful thinking. And it's pretty wild that at the same time, there's a subpoena for him to appear in court for criminal charges. And so on the one hand, is he going to prison? And on the other hand, is he going to be the next president? <laughs> it's, can he do both? Can he be president from prison? You know, I mean, <laughs> at, at this point, I'm not counting anything out, Luke. <laughs> Well, best of luck yourselves. I'll be watching that one closely in a couple of years. Yeah. yeah. So something else big happened, as it did. perhaps listeners to our previous two conversations recall, I up and got married. So I have a shiny new, shiny new band signifying all kinds of uh, vows. And it was a beautiful ceremony. I was, I was overwhelmed by the intensity of it. I did not expect it to be so 
sort of out of body. And because this marriage is my first and I'm, you know, no spring chicken, so many people from the different layers of my life were there. And it was, it was like almost like a, like a historical holograph where childhood and, and college and grad school, middle age, you know, and all in one place. So that was pretty intense, but the ceremony of it, the, you know, imbuing these vows publicly with all these witnesses that really, really touched me in a profound Fantastic. way. Very good. Were there, uh, were there tears of joy on the day? Could I ask? There were tears of joy and we inspired, uh, uh, one of our friends proposed the next day. They were so inspired, <laughs> which was, which was pretty cool. Um, at least they didn't try and steal your thunder by proposing right, on yeah. your wedding day. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, uh, to those of you not seeing our video, uh, I feel much lighter, much, <laughs> yeah. much lighter. And that's because my, my fiance did not know that I had been working on a art project for a year and a half, which was growing my hair to an obscenely uncomfortable and <laughs> I, you know, to your, to, I, I think maybe to the seven investing teams benefit, not one of you pointed out that I look like a scraggly <laughs> muffin we always, off always the got that hat on, man. We could, we only saw the hair when you took the hat off, maybe two, two team meetings ago. <laughs> okay. Right. Could be right. And, but, but my sideburns were all bushy and out of control and I just looked like a crazed person, but that was, that was for, there was a reason for that because my, I knew my, my fiance long time ago, she in passing, not requested, but I knew she wanted me to look sharp but i'm my own man luke you know i'm not no one's going to tell me how to how to dress and look so I, I i you know and i always like toying with with boundaries pushing things so i want to scare her the living bejesus out of her uh not telling her you know i would say like you have no idea what i'm gonna wear right and she really thought i was gonna wear some sort of like sparkling mirror suit and show up on a unicycle with you know like a with clown shoes and and a trumpet but instead i decided a long time ago i was going as as classic james bond as i could so very good that's, that's an interesting play though you basically tested the uh, the strength of your engagement with your fiance by becoming like the antithesis of the man she wants to show up at the altar that day <laughs> Correct. Correct. And, and, you know, actually we had the rehearsal dinner before the wedding. So Friday night and my hair was as out of control as ever. And I wore a sparkly jacket. And, uh, two days later I, I heard from the families, uh, that my mother-in-law was actually deeply concerned. <laughs> she, she did express some, some like, Oh my God, but she didn't say anything. So to her, uh, I think great merit, she held her tongue. And so on Saturday morning, I went and I got my hair completely cut, uh, got the clean shave with the razor, you know, and, um, surprised, I think everyone by showing up, you know, looking like, I'd say I look pretty sharp if I don't say so myself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. I, I like it. So I feel, I feel so much lighter. My God, that, that, that hair like was. <laughs> You know, one of my uh, one of my close friends had a bit of a hair wedding disaster himself a couple of years ago, and uh, I think his 
his wife had had a sort of beautician come to do the makeup for herself and the bridesmaids. And so literally the day before, maybe they were having their eyebrows plucked. And my buddy said, hey, he's got pretty bushy eyebrows. He's like, oh, hey, why don't you do my eyebrows at the same time? And they use, I don't know, Uh I don't do eyebrow plucking. They use some kind of uh, chemical treatment to sort of tame these bushes. And he ended up with these chemical burns. So actually oh, in his geez. wedding photos, he has this kind of <laughs> crazy surprised look on his face in every photo. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm delighted for you uh, that uh, the day went swimmingly and particularly that there were presumably no hangovers on the wedding day. Zero hangovers. That was the other thing. You know, I barely, I didn't drink anything. I had one champagne toast. I didn't eat anything. And I had, you know, we had donuts delivered. We had a big donut truck and... <laughs> Uh, and I didn't really get to sample any of it because it was just too, you know, too much going on, too many conversations and, and people. The one, the one last thing uh, I'll add that maybe was the highlight for me is that we had been practicing a secret dance for about two years, and so when it was two time years. for wow. yeah, when it was time for the couples dance, we had the about two minutes of the slow waltz to my favorite Dylan song. And then I choreographed that that seamlessly transitioning to Leonard Cohen's tango, Dance Me to the End of Love, in which we actually tangoed. And then that, <laughs> there was a transition to uh, a salsa song where we salsaed, which transitioned to, obviously, Magic Mike Mike's Pony. <laughs> uh, and when I watch the video of it, the crowd is just absolutely hooting and hollering, you know, because <laughs> no one, you know, it's one of those no one was expecting it. And I didn't fuck up too badly. <laughs> <laughs> I missed maybe a couple turns here and there, but mostly it was, it, you know, it went all right. So it was so joyful. Fantastic. I'll, I'll look forward to uh, seeing the video of that at some point if it's public domain. Uh, it will be soon. Or maybe you can reprise the dance for us on a future podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So uh, you want to talk? You want to talk some AI stuff? Let's do that. Let's get serious. How about taking us back to the Tesla AI day? I did watch the Tesla AI day from a beach in Thailand. The overwhelming sense I had watching was that it was like a recruitment event for some of the smartest engineers and. That's a really smart way for Musk to leverage his brand. Like their culture of innovation is one of the key things that really sets them apart from their competitors. And if he can recruit like some of the best AI engineers on the planet, which it seems he's successful in doing, well, you know, that in itself is a very significant moat for the company. And that's what I heard too in the follow-up that he mentioned that the amount of resumes increased by whatever magnitude it's amazing to think some of the you know what is it that makes a company truly stand out we get caught up in the financial statements and all of that but sometimes it's these intangibles that are just you can't even you know they don't fit on the balance sheet or they don't fit on the cash flow statement but it's like little moves like this which end up being gargantuan because if you think about right like where the brilliant ideas come from they come from human minds well how do you get the human minds to sign up on your team it's through doing these right. kinds of things and yeah. tesla like yeah have the most brilliant. interesting problems to work on them you know you're going to mm-hmm. attract people even putting things like salaries aside if you have the most interesting problems right people are going to want to come there and try and solve those with you yeah so the the second 
question I had that was sort of maybe open-ended, but I think I have a view on it. I'm curious what yours is. My recollection is that afterwards there was some pushback against the quality of the robot that was revealed, <laughs> right? Because if, you, if anyone listening to this remembers, there's the Boston Dynamics team, right? And I remember seeing a video, YouTube video of the robots, their robots like doing somersaults and kind of choreographed dancing. And it was, you know, very high level stuff. Like, oh my God, these, these robots can really do a lot. And then you have Tesla showing what appeared like a more primitive kind of clunky, you know, version one kind of thing. And the pushback was, you know, what? Like you, you had this, this big hoopla and you're, you're revealing this thing that isn't that impressive. My take is that, correct me if I'm wrong, Luke, that what Tesla was emphasizing was that we are looking in terms of actual productivity and the capacity to make these things that have utility. And utility does not mean doing somersaults. Utility means we are thinking really in terms of like production line and getting from point A, this idea of a robot being a legitimate helper to actually making them and selling them and implementing them. So the quickest path toward reven another revenue generating source on one hand and obviously optimizing efficiencies in another. So therefore we don't need to make them fancy. Is that your understanding? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think this is Musk's kind of um, first principles thinking about everything, right? What's the point in creating, say, a half a million dollar robot if you can't really kind of scale out production because it's so complex to build at scale? And, you know, yeah, what is the potential um, demand for these, right? You've, you've said they're like factories and in the home, like just by themselves. That could be like a billion plus robots. And there's a ton of other use cases too. Um, if you could start producing these things at like ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars, not half a million dollars, well, there's a whole bunch of use cases that just make absolute sense. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like a huge. It's hard to. It's really hard for me to think about this company now other than an AI company, right? So when I hear about all the revenue forecasts and always focusing on the amounts of cars being sold, I mean, right, obviously that's where the current revenue is coming from mostly if you discount even solar, I mean, or energy stuff. But after the AI show or recruitment event, anyone, I just can't take anyone seriously that, that calls Tesla a car company. I'm not trying to be dismissive either, but I mean, it's just like right there, like we are about to make robots, like so. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but it's still a long way to go, right? There are some, you know, not insurmountable hurdles to, to clamber over, but it's a long way from what they showed at AI Day to actually sticking something in a environment where it has to, you know, interact with people. So you've got all those kind of risks and danger potential um, to be able to do that safely at massive scale. Um, it's a long journey, but Tesla do seem to be the leader on this journey right now. So I wonder in terms of realistic timelines, whether this AI event day would actually allow Tesla to speed up the rate at which they catch, say, the leaders, if they, in theory, are even behind. Right. 
like whether whether this had the impact the desired impact and it seems like if you've collected all these thousands of resumes then the rate at which the robot might actually be brought to production might this is maybe our inherent optimistic ways of thinking might actually be faster than we think for sure i mean i suppose there are already robots in warehouses right what's what's that company six river systems um and you know amazon have robots scurrying around their warehouses but i guess you know they're, they're like almost the amazon robots almost like mobile packing shelves to help human packers here though we've got with musk's optimus we've got a you know an actual humanoid robot that can do more human tasks so much more general purpose and as far as i could tell on the last earnings report now, I'm pretty sure there's zero revenue from from the robot, right? And there's zero revenue being anticipated. It's all still about the cars. So that Today, extra yeah. optional S-curve of growth is simply not being accounted for in current valuations. Yeah. I guess people are forecasting that the manufacturing costs of the cars will come down. I suppose sticking robots into warehouses will be one of the levers that can help them bring down costs like they can eliminate or redeploy the human workforce into different roles yeah okay have you been playing with any new ai toys that's a leading question you know i have <laughs> I, got, I got two awesome ai toys i uh, i got to the top of the beta q4 in the last couple of weeks so one was uh dali 2 which is that awesome tool for kind of creating pretty much any image you can describe it'll go out and produce like beautiful works of art or photorealistic renders of whatever crazy idea you could come up with um and then one i've been playing with just in the last 48 hours is a authoring tool a writing tool called lex which basically uses gpt3 to help you write stuff i wrote an article over the weekend and Lex was invaluable when I was getting kind of writer's block at certain points, Lex would chime in with some really interesting kind of snippet to help me sort of prompt my thoughts and, uh, and get to the next part of the article. That's so fascinating. Yes. I'm, I'm loving this tool, Lex. I've only just started to get to grips with it. I got it to write me a poem. I was pretty blown away with uh, how articulate it was. It's helped me with an article. And uh, I was demonstrating it to my wife yesterday and it helped her with an Instagram post she was trying to write this thing. It's a large language model and it just seems to be insanely smart at helping you kind of finish your thoughts. So uh, I think it's going to add a lot of utility to anyone who's in the writing trade in the same way that uh, mm -hmm. Dali 2 is going to help artists. You know, these things aren't going to replace people in any way, but they're going to accelerate um, and kind of give you superpowers as a creator, I think. I read the poem that you, you generated and uh, wow, do I have mixed feelings about this thing? Because it really like, yeah, I mean, if a stu if one of my poetry students handed that in, I, I mean, maybe if I really, you know, if I was aware that, that there might be AI in play, I would scrutinize very, very carefully, but without any kind of like priming, I don't think there'd be a way to know like if it read like a poem you know a pretty decent yeah. one and, it, is... and it, it kind of tied together somehow it tied together like the beginning and the end in a nice way like the lamest contributions to the poem were the two lines i wrote man this thing's super good <laughs> they uh <laughs> they had they had a real sensibility to them right something about uh was it a bird um 
a bird shadow. I think I think I've got the poem on Twitter. I won't read it now, but uh, but go check out my Twitter at okay. Seven Luke Hallard and have a read. It's uh, it's interesting. I I, I actually I, I humorously I went back to my title and I substituted AI poetry for an AI recipe and generated something from the same starting line. The thing gave me like a recipe for uh, making I think making like a lark pie. It's uh, it's wild. Wow. <laughs> And the recipe made sense. I spent a bit of time in the kitchen. Like, oh. these flavors kind of made sense together. Are you open to talking about how it helped you with the content that you were writing? Like, like what point did you get stuck and say, okay, I wonder what, what I could get from this. And then what did it offer you? Yes. Yeah, so I, so I'm, I was writing an article about ADRs, American Depository Receipts. And, um, you know, I won't go down that rabbit hole. It's a, it's quite a complicated topic, but essentially it's a, it's a mechanism for U.S. investors to get exposure to international companies in a slightly different way than just investing on the, the overseas exchange. So it's quite a technical topic. Next, well, let's, let's take an example. So, okay, there are, there are what's called sponsored and unsponsored ADRs, and they have kind of different attributes and are kind of pros and cons of both of those categories, well, I, with a kind of a key sort of keying up phrase of um, the benefits of a sponsored ADR are, and you just kind of hit plus, 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 and then the Lex AI jumps into action and it generated like a bulleted list that was pretty robust. You know, I'm writing an article for Seven Investing, right? I'm not going to take anything the AI tells me at a pinch of salt, but I went off and did my own research and it was a pretty good list. So um, wow. I think I think you're not going to want, as a professional author, you're not going to want to kind of lean on this stuff and rely on it. Like it could be coming up with complete garbage, but I think just helping you kind of, you know, unstick your mind and giving you a starting point for a bit more research, it's invaluable. I've been saying, I think maybe to my students now on the collegiate level for, I want, hmm, it seems like maybe it's been a while, call it 10 years that the point is no longer information, right? We have all the information we need in our pockets, starting with the iPhone or iPhone error, right? And so what is it that I can teach you that's of value that doesn't have to do with information? Now it seems like that's that case embodied, like it's no longer about knowledge. So the question becomes, what value can humans provide? What is the kind of maybe the hard stuff, right, that we should be working on? And the, the best guess I have is it, it, it now using this as a test, what you talked about, Luke, as the test case, it seems like the task for us is to be interpreters of the knowledge, right? And maybe contextualizing appropriately, yeah, which, that's, is, that's... which might not be obvious, right? Like, so let's imagine this AI robot can write the whole paper for you. Right. So, so now what? Okay. If it's most, if it's, almost entirely true and accurate and factual is our job done and it seems like no because the next step is to ask like where does that piece fit in in relationship to everything else we know which i think is the thing that true general intelligence can't do it can't understand the context of its world and that's the yeah, only thing that humans can do right yeah, applying the sort of human intuition, perhaps, and making kind of logical leaps that, um, you know, perhaps it would be hard for a very specialized algorithm to create outside of its kind of specialized 
domain of competence. You know, we're, we're good at kind of making links between seemingly disconnected pieces of information and kind of drawing inferences. Um, and you say, right, we've, we've gone from this kind of paucity of information, maybe just a decade or two ago, to now suddenly, you know, the world's information is organized and at our fingertips. And, uh, you know, a Google search can tell you pretty much anything about anything. But now you've got AI that's kind of bringing that information together in a much more kind of coherent and easy to use manner. Mm -hmm. Right. Luke, did we want to say a little bit about a uh, little pause for an ad in this case for seven investing? Oh, why not? Why not? We, uh, we, we'll, we'll try and stick a, a little Luke and Christoph ad into every episode, but we got a bit <clears throat> bored of our ad from the last two weeks. So we thought we'd chat about seven investing itself. So, you know, Christoph, we're both lead advisors at seven investing and what Seven Investing's kind of mission statement, we say it's our mission to empower you to invest in your future. And we do that by providing monthly stock recommendations for our premium members and educational content that's freely available for everybody. But you're kind of new to the team, Christoph. You've been with us for a couple of months now. What does that mean to you? How does that mission statement resonate with you? I think the differentiator that I've experienced so far is one, the depth of research that we offer in terms of the, the reports. I mean, they're really, not that length is always the, the key signifier, but they're long, which means that we've all put in a lot of time to really get to understand the companies that we're recommending. And then what I've heard and what I've experienced is that we're accessible to that this, there's one seven of us and that all seven of us are available to answer questions both on the discord chat and on the subscriber call and in uh i guess the through the company updates and so that it's not like the thing we're doing is some holy grail of knowledge that then remains behind some paywall and then you just have to take our word for it, but it feels to me a much more dynamic invitation for anyone wanting to learn how to invest, to follow the process and to interact with us. And knowledge is born, I think the good knowledge via interaction and unexpected emergence of ideas. What do you think? No, I, I agree. I think the discord is, is quite new for us, but actually it's incredibly powerful. Um, it'd be great. You know, we've got thousands of members on the Discord now. It'd be great, actually, you know, if you're listening and you're in the Discord and you're kind of lurking, like chime in, say hello, ask a question, share an opinion. Right? It'd be good to hear from more people. But we've got maybe, I would say, maybe 20 or 30 members now who are actively contributing and, you know, helping me understand the companies I'm invested in in better ways um, and sharing stock ideas. I think it's really, really valuable. And as you say, um, you know, you look online on the Discord and Discord's kind of fun. You can kind of see who's active at any time. So, you know, I can see you sitting there in green sometimes. I know Christoph is maybe writing something or uh, or chatting with another member. It feels kind of real. It feels live. And to the last point here, it feels to me like one of the biggest mistakes any investor can make is not understanding for themselves the reason or reasons why they invested or the company itself. If that's the case, then you are at the whim of basically somebody else's idea or bias, and you really can never know their motivation. I mean, not to, not to 
infuse any malevolent uh, things here, but, but the market's tricky, right? And so I think we empower people to really say, you can learn, you can figure out what's important to look at, to study, and it is possible to have a pretty deep understanding of the companies you invest in. And if that's your floor, then you will be set up for success. And you know, when the stock market's in the sort of part of the cycle it is right now, when at least growth stock valuations are really through the floor, like really understanding your own thesis for the company is critically important because, you know, if, you, if you've bought something because a service you signed up for just told you, oh, go buy this thing, well, it, you know, if you're sitting on maybe a 50 50% plus drawdown, at some point, you're just going to say, those guys got it wrong. And you're going to, you know, you're going to bin that stock from your portfolio. But if you really understand the thesis and the reasons why you're invested, well, that's going to help you kind of hold the line when things are going bad, because you'll know the kind of metrics that show the, the company is improving and growing in the most important way. Like the stock price isn't always an accurate reflection of truly what's happening in a company and its prospects. Mm -hmm. Amen. This was the best seven investing ad we've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> we had, uh, we'll get Otter to transcribe it for us and we'll get Lex to improve it. Right. Awesome. <laughs> so my, uh, my main update for this week has to do with the metaverse. You've been reading that book, right? Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll hold it up to the light one more time. I'm finding it really fascinating in the last section really, uh, really taught me something. And maybe it was because I was naive to start with, but anytime I learn something like what, you know, like what feels like a big chunk, I'm, I'm delighted. So I highly, highly recommend this book. Here's what I learned. I did not know the extent to which Apple is kind of playing the role of villain in terms of call it being the gatekeeper through which a company shall not pass unless it's willing to give up a huge chunk of profit to Apple's platform, right? So Apple is this uh, gatekeeper because they control the payment infrastructure. And therefore that makes it very hard for developers to have a business model that they could essentially innovate and profit from when you have the, the David um, versus Goliath kind of thing happening. And it seems like the metaverse cannot happen in our idea of it, meaning like many virtual worlds that are interconnected to one another if you have this, this gatekeeper currently again in the form of Apple. So this, there's a part two to that, but for one, Apple is one of the two companies in my life that I truly, truly loved and followed the story of from, you know, like one of those passion projects. So it was odd for me to come across them in this more villainous kind of light. I'll pause there and see if you have something, if you have a reaction to just that piece. I guess Apple's actions around privacy in inverted commas, but essentially clawing into their world, a lot of the advertising revenues um, from ad tech, well, that's hurt my portfolio quite badly. I'm not an Apple shareholder, but I am a shareholder of many companies that have kind of suffered from uh, the, the actions they've taken over the last year or so. But, you know, uh, competition isn't fair. There's no point in kind of whinging and moaning about it. Mm -hmm. I do wonder at what point 
the regulators kind of step into this uh, in the US mm. and start clamping down on some of the power they have. You know, it's not dissimilar to maybe Microsoft when they were kind of sanctioned for, uh, you know, forcing Internet Explorer to be like the browser mm -hmm. on every PC. So if, if I were to think of this in binary terms, at the moment in 2022, it seems like if the metaverse is going to evolve into a vibrant thing, then Apple, whatever its current structures are, those have to, by definition, change. So either they're going to lose a whole bunch of revenue and then they'll have to really adapt to whatever the metaverse is forcing them to adapt to, or there might not be a metaverse the way we currently envision it because of the, their policies. And it's curious, I believe recently I heard that Tim Cook isn't deliberately avoiding the use of the phrase metaverse. And now I think I'm starting to understand why. Okay. I don't know what's, if what's, um, what's happening inside Apple? Have they got their own VR hardware that's coming at some point? Or was that just rumor? It's rumor, but I'm pretty sure it's one of those uh, rumor in, in just the sense that they've hidden the product, but it, they're working on their device. If, I, if I'm being honest, you know, the whole knock against Apple since Steve Jobs passed away is that they've only been iterating. It seems to me that the greatest opportunity they have to truly create something innovative, it, it would be in whatever the AR, VR headset thing would be. And I would not be surprised if they really came out with something that was, you know, a, a whole leap in whatever Facebook meta is offering. Yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, their focus on design and kind of, you know, uh, aesthetics and usability, I think is what's needed because mm -hmm. this hardware is kind of clunky in the current iteration. And so, right. So the second piece that connects to the first Luke is that I now have a greater respect for what blockchain technology is doing or trying to do because the answer to Apple's closed payment rails gatekeeping is blockchain. And I think for a lot of people, this might be a valuable insight that what we've seen so far in the carnivalesque uh, scam infested waters is, yeah, the early stages of, of the bad actors and just people speculating. But with the cryptocurrencies and the altcoins and all of that stuff, but we also now know for a fact that blockchain technology enables a different form of payments on which the metaverse would thrive, therefore circumventing the problem of Apple. And you, that, that immediately gives the whole space much, to me, much more legitimacy as far as like why, why we should care and continue staying updated. Yeah, now, maybe for a future podcast, we can go down that rabbit hole a bit further because I'm also a believer that um, sort of decentralized currencies are the future for lots of reasons. And we're in this kind of wild west time right now that probably isn't indicative of the true power of some of these, well, this, uh, this protocol or this platform. Yeah. Luke, so I see that we're on uh, about the hour mark. And I also know that, uh, I don't know if you, you came across the latest Lex Friedman podcast with Balaj Syverson. Pardon, pardon, uh, I butchered his last name, but that was eight hours long. I don't know if we're, if we've worked up to that level yet. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'll definitely need more than sparkling water if we're going eight hours. What, what were Lex and Balaji talking about that they went so long? Uh, everything. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I made it through the first hour this morning, which was about UFOs and okay. the network state and the problem with governments. Wow. Cool. Okay. Yeah. There's a, there's a whole, I'm, I consider myself a distance runner, but there's a whole bunch of distance runs to get through that one. Or one long one. Yeah, well, a very long one. Yeah. So <laughs> but you're right. We, we're uh, we're coming up on the hour, which is kind of the arbitrary deadline we've set for ourselves right now. So do you wanna do you wanna land this plane, or do you wanna talk some more about the agenda items? Let's uh, let's land the plane. But I think we're gonna close the episode out with uh, you taking revenge on me for the three conversations game last week. Correct, Luke. So unless I'm mis uh, unless I'm misremembering, I'm going to ask you three questions and you get to veto one of them as as uh, off the table. And then I pick one of the two remaining ones. Is that correct? That's it. And I'll, I'll try and be articulate about that topic for, let's say, a minute. OK, here we go. Okay. Question number one is imagine tomorrow we get to have general artificial intelligence or a flourishing metaverse, which do you, which, which fork in the multiverse do you take? Okay. And why? Okay. Question number two, what's harder for you being a good husband or being a good poker player? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and, and why? <laughs> and question three, Luke is, which of these three has the most merit? The UK, Ireland, or head of lettuce? <laughs> head of lettuce? Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. There's a joke. There's a joke yeah, on that, yeah, yeah. uh, <laughs> right? Like, will uh, Liz Truss out, outlive a, a head of lettuce? And I believe the head of lettuce won. It did. The Daily Star, uh, <laughs> a fantastic bit of self-promotion there. Uh, Okay, I like it. Uh, I'm, I'm terrified of all three of those, but I'm going to veto the third one just because it sounds like a confusing topic. So your choice, husbands or AGIs. Okay. I, uh, talk to me about, uh, yeah, what, what's harder? What, what's harder, being a good husband or a good poker player? <laughs> being an AGI. <laughs> being an AGI in the metaverse. Uh, hmm. Okay. Right. Let's see. Let me. We certainly haven't prepared this in any way. Let me steal myself around this topic. So, what's harder, being a good husband or a good poker player? Have I understood the question? Okay. So let's. Okay. Let's think about the disciplines or the attributes of each of those, so we can contrast them. So, uh, and both require work. By the way, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, being a good husband uh, requires. Uh, being considerate, kind of understanding your partner's needs, being a good communicator, um, and being, you know, part of a team and collaborative. And as I said, those four things, I realize I'm terrible at all of those. Uh, <laughs> being a good poker player requires discipline, study, a great memory, bit of a head for maths, and maybe the ability to kind of put yourself in your opponent's perspective and kind of, mm. you know, think about things in a multi-dimensional way to make a good decision. Um, so they're wildly different, uh, almost polar opposite 
skill sets. And I do wonder, this isn't answering your question, I do wonder if being good at one thing is kind of uh, correlated with being bad at the other. Because I think I'm a decent poker player and I'm kind of a bit of an average husband. <laughs> so was it, uh, what was the question? Was it, was it better to be one or the other? Was it, what's... <laughs> what's harder for you? Harder, harder for me. Well, okay, so harder for me certainly is being a good husband for, mm. because of those kind of key attributes, which I think is a pretty decent list mm -hmm. of, uh, mm -hmm. of, you know, things. I'm a, I'm kind of a bad communicator about emotional things. Um, and I certainly do think of Katrina and myself as a team, but I maybe don't talk to her about that clearly enough. Maybe for me, it comes down to communication. Um, I, I enjoy, you know, kind of talking into the ether on a podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm enjoying chatting to you. I enjoy chatting to my buddies. When kind of, em, you know, emotions get overlaid on that, though, maybe I find communication much more difficult than I should. I actually had my buddy Albert listen to episode two and uh, told me off just this morning for saying that I find it easier to say I love him to him than I do uh -huh. to say the same thing to my <laughs> wife. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, wow. That was such a good answer. Would you, I, wonder... uh, so I, I can't turn the question back at you, but you know, you are a poker player and you're a new husband. Would you give up your poker skills to be the world's greatest husband? <laughs> no, that's so unfair. I can't. I, it's not my turn this week. <laughs> okay, man. It's on my list for next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, I'm only seven days in. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I just I just wake up and I'm like, oh, I, I get to be a husband today. Just don't release any mini budgets in your first 44 days. No. <laughs> <laughs> The, the one thing, uh, maybe, maybe to end this pod, when I heard you say that a good poker player can take the perspective of, you know, the other hands, I'm not sure that's, I think that's actually exactly the kind of skill set that would make someone a great husband because it's yeah, all yeah. relationship, right? Like if, if you know why, why your partner is upset and you could actually step out of your own view, then odds are you're not going to create more, more of a mess. So that I would say sense. they're actually, Ooh, yeah. Oh. Although in poker you could, you know, you can probably relatively accurately, uh, assign probabilities to certain outcomes. Whereas, you know, you try and predict what your partner's going to do. You're, uh, you're like for an upset. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard work, hard one wisdom, right? <laughs> oh yeah oh, sure. that's come from <laughs> all right luke it's been such a pleasure talking to you one more time with no limits to our conversation i really look forward to talking to you again post u.s elections this time in uh early november very good great chatting to you buddy see you soon that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.